Psalm 78. If when we get through with the lesson, you'd like these sections of uh, topics for a certain amount of verses, like we had in verses 32 through 37, an example of deep of the deep-rooted nature of sin. Verses 38 through 40, we had an example of God's great mercy. And verses 41 through 42, we had an example of ingratitude and unbelief. And we're in the section 43 through 51 that has to do with an example of deliverance from bondage. And uh, we've read uh, four, three or four of these verses, but let's start again with verse uh, 43 and get the whole section through 51. And it has to do with the judgments upon Egypt during the days of Moses. So let's pick up with verse 43. We got down to verse uh, 45, actually, but uh, we'll pick up 43. It says, How he wrought his signs in Egypt and his wonders in the field of Zoan. It's speaking of how God, in his power, brought the judgments upon Egypt. It says, And had turned their rivers into blood and their floods that they could not drink. He sent divers sorts of flies among them and devoured them, and frogs which devoured them, destroyed them, rather. He gave also their increase under the caterpillar and their labor under the locusts. Remember the, the plagues of locusts that, they, that came upon them? And then it says in verse 47, He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamore trees with frost. He gave up their cattle also to the hail and their flocks to the hot thunderbolts or the lightning. He cast upon them the fierceness of his anger, wrath and indignation and trouble by sending evil angels among them, all the evil plagues of judgments. In verse 50, he made a way to his anger. He spared not their soul from death. He gave their life over to the pestilence. And verse 51 says, and smote all the firstborn in Egypt, the chief of their strength in the tabernacles of Ham. In other words, that was the last one of these judgments. Remember that God uh, empowered Moses to bring great judgments upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians because Pharaoh would not let God's people go. God said to Pharaoh through Moses, he says, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. Let my son go. Israel as a nation was compared to God's son, his chosen. And uh, God wanted Pharaoh to release him. And in doing so, God uh, said that he would bring certain plagues and judgments upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And he brought those judgments upon them. And uh, it seemed like from time to time that, uh, that Pharaoh would decide to let them go. And then he'd change his mind. He didn't keep his word. Does that remind you of anyone you know today? If you read back and you study the judgments, I, I won't turn back to them, but after a certain number of judgments, well, Pharaoh had said, well, I'll let you go, only go not very far away. Just stay close to Egypt. And uh, he says, next thing, he says, you go, but uh, and you can go, but uh, uh, don't take your children and your families with you. And then finally he says, you can go and take your children and your families, but leave your herds and flocks behind. And all of these were attempts to compromise. We have a message on Pharaoh's four great compromises. And Moses and God would not accept any of them. God is not a compromising God. He puts down his law and his word and you either meet that or, or you have no uh, relationship with God. God is a God of mercy and grace, but he is not a God of compromise. And he's not going to compromise uh, his uh, purpose, his will. So... 
He brought these judgments. And the ten great judgments that were brought upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians was a blood. He turned the water into blood. He brought frogs and uh, lice and flies and murane, a disease upon the man and beast, and boils and hail and the locust and the darkness and then the death of the firstborn. These are ten great judgments he brought upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And that's where we come down to to verse 51. The next, uh, by the way, all these plagues started out with mild judgments. God started out in, in you might think, well, uh, turning water into blood is not mild. Well, it's, not a, it, it's really not mild in a sense. It is a great judgment. But when you think of the death of all the firstborn, or when you think of some of the other uh, judgments, it was mild in comparison. So he started out and he increased those judgments. And so will it come during the tribulation period. You'll start out with judgments and they'll get worse and worse all during the tribulation period if you study the book of Revelation. Now, if you look at verse 52 and 53, we have an example of the Lord's tender care. It says, But made his own people to go forth like sheep. God's people are like sheep. And guided them in the wilderness like a flock. And he led them on safely so that they feared not, but the sea overwhelmed their enemies. Two things he did here. First of all, he took care of his own people safely, and he brought them in safely, and he destroyed their enemies. It says overwhelmed, the sea overwhelmed their enemies. When you think of God's people being led like sheep, we're not driven. Remember there was a man in the Bible named Legion, and it says he was driven of the devil. He was driven. The devil likes to drive people. He drives them from one thing to another until it's worse and worse all the time. He's the one that controls and dominates and doesn't give you freedom. And he's behind all of that kind of driving. We're not, we're not uh, to be driven. We're to be led. God's people are to be led. You know, I know preachers that are dominators too and, and uh, dictators as well and drive people. But it should never be said that a pastor tries to drive people. A pastor should try to lead people. And Jesus is the great shepherd. And we're under shepherds. And we're to be leaders not only by what we say in preaching the word, but what we do. And our life has to measure up to what we uh, preach and teach in the word of God. And if it's different, there's something drastically wrong, isn't it? So we find that... Uh, he made his own people to go forth like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. In Isaiah 40, I want you to listen to this verse. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 11. It says, He shall feed, he shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. Four things. He will feed, he will gather, he will carry, he will gently lead. The Lord feeds his sheep. The Lord gathers the lambs. He knows the lambs are, are tender. They are little. They, are, they're, they need a, a special care. And carry them in his bosom. And shall gently lead those that are with young. Those that are going to have the, the lambs. Those that are with young. It reminds me, if you look back in the book of Genesis, chapter uh, 33, where Esau 
was bring, was uh, meeting his brother. Jacob was going to come face to face with Esau after he had been separated for a long period of time. And remember, they left on bad terms. Jacob ran away, and Esau was mad at him, and they were he was afraid Esau was going to kill him, and so he ran away. And then here comes after so many years a time of reunion. And Jacob wants to be uh, reunited with his brother Esau. He wants to see if time has healed some of these wounds. And he was still afraid. And he offers him a present in verse 8. And in verse 9, Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep that that thou hast unto thyself. Esau had plenty. Jacob had offered him a great gift. Verse 10, And Jacob said, Nay, I pray thee, if, if now I have found grace in thy sight, then receive my present at my hand. For therefore I have seen thy face, as though I had seen the face of, of God. And thou wast pleased with me. Take, I pray thee, my blessing that is brought to thee, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. And he urged him, and he took it. And he said, Let us take our journey, and let us go, and I will go before thee. Now look, and Jacob is speaking now. And he said unto him, My Lord knoweth that the children are tender, and the flocks and the herds, uh, uh, and the flocks and herds with young are with me. And if men should overdrive them one day, all the flock will die. Let my Lord, I pray thee, pass over before his servant, and I will lead on softly, according as the cattle that goeth before me, and the children be able to endure, until I come unto my Lord, unto Seir, the Mount Seir, of course. So he said, I want to not overdrive the flock, and all the flock will die if they will be driven. He says, the children are tender, the flocks and herds are with young. Then he said, in verse uh, 14, I will lead on softly according to the cattle that goes before me, and the children be able to endure. In all of these verses, or in these verses, you see the tenderness of the of a real shepherd. And that verse we read in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11, shows us the tenderness of a good shepherd as well. Now I want you to notice back in our psalm, Psalm 78, and let's read verse 52 and 3 again. But he made his, made his own people to go forth like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. And he led them on safely so that they feared not. God's people need not be afraid if the Lord is with them. Remember, Jesus said, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Fear not, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. In Hebrews, fear not, peace be unto thee, fear not. He led them on safely so that they feared not, but the sea overwhelmed their enemies. You see, God is on the side of right. God is on the side of good. God is on the side of his people. And the enemies of God will be overwhelmed. In verse 54, and he brought them, and verses 54 and 55 is an example of the way that the Lord rewards his own people. He brought them to the border of his sanctuary, even to this mountain, which his right hand had purchased. He cast out the heathen also before them, and divided them an inheritance by line, and made the tribes of Israel to dwell in their tents. The Lord is able to reward his own, and will reward his own. In verses 56 through 58, we have another example of ingratitude and rebellion. In verse 56, 
Yet they tempted and provoked the Most High God and kept not his testimony. They tempted and provoked the Most High God and kept not his testimonies. They had agreed to obey his word, but they kept on provoking God. They kept on disobeying God. They were filled with unbelief. If you read in Hebrews chapter 3, you'd like to turn the third of Hebrews, you'll find that a whole story about their provocation in the wilderness. It says in verse 8, Harden not your hearts as in the provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years, wherefore I was grieved with that generation, and said, They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. The rest of Canaan, Canaan's rest. He spoke of Canaan's land as the land of rest. And he said, So I swear in my wrath they shall not enter into my rest. Because of unbelief they would not enter in. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is deceitful, isn't it? And people can become hardened through it. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast and then. While it is said, Today if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. For some when they had heard did provoke. Howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses, but with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believe not? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Why did, why did the, all the adult generation from 20 years old and upward not enter Canaan's land? Because of unbelief. And because they provoked God to anger in the wilderness. And because of the sin of rebellion and ingratitude and unbelief. You know, one of the worst sins that you can really think of is ingratitude. It's spoken of in the book of Romans concerning very terrible actions of men. Let me look at verse in chapter 1 of Romans. It says, because that when they, verse 21, because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God. Now listen, neither were thankful. That's ingratitude, isn't it? Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. How does, how does uh, darkness and vanity and terrible sins, and if you go on down and read, it gets worse and worse, not better. How did it start? Neither were thankful. Start out simply. Just ingratitude. Neither were thankful. But became vain in their, look at the progress. But became vain in their imaginations, their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and to birds and four footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. If you look back in our psalm now, it says in verse 56, Yet they tempted and provoked the Most High and kept not His testimonies. Verse 57, uh, it says, 
but turned back and dealt unfaithfully like their fathers, they were turned aside like a deceitful bow. They turned back, they dealt unfaithfully, they were unfaithful, not only to God, but to the morals, moral standards that God had. And they were turned aside like a deceitful bow. Verse 58, For they provoked him to anger in their high places. These were places of worship for their idolatry. And moved him to jealousy <coughs> with their graven images. Remember, God had said in the commandments, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Thou shalt not bow down and worship them. And when God gave them the law, and Moses came down off of the mountain, and Aaron and the people had already um, made a molten calf, a brazen calf to worship. And they had already said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee out of Egypt, worshiping a golden calf. And old Aaron, he, Aaron, Moses' brother, a good man for a while, but pressured by the people. And then he said, well, they wanted uh, a calf to worship, and we thought you'd got lost up on the mountain, that you were never coming back. And they, people demanded something to worship. And he says, we, I took all the gold and threw it in the fire, and he says, out came this calf. Can you imagine that? A golden calf come walking out of the fire. And the Bible says that Aaron had fashioned it with a grating tool. He had made it a molten calf for them. See, Aaron tried to blame the people. This business of passing the buck to someone else doesn't work. Whatever I've done is my responsibility. We're living in a nation when people, uh, a nation of people that do not want to be responsible. Did you know that? They absolutely want the other fellow to take their responsibility. And we cannot do that. Every person is responsible for his actions. And when we can get people to be responsible for their own actions, well, then that's the thing that we need to do. In uh, verse uh, 58, For they provoked him to anger in their high places and moved him to jealousy with their graven images. When God heard this, he was wroth and greatly abhorred Israel, so that he forsook the tab- so that he forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh, the tent which he placed among men. If God's presence wasn't there, it didn't mean anything, even though he had dedicated this a place of worship. You see, God in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle, his glory appeared behind the veil in the Holy of Holies. We preached and taught you on the tabernacle. We like to let this front part of the church represent the holy place. And behind the veil, if there were a big veil here, and another third of the building back here, two-thirds out here and a third back here, it would be illustrative of the, of the uh, tabernacle. And behind that veil, God's presence, they said, the Shekinah glory of brightness that they could tell, the priest, the high priest could tell that God's presence was there. And he could not enter in but once a year, and not without blood, of the brazen altar out in the front. And he entered in and sprinkled the blood upon the mercy seat of this Ark of the Covenant that was made of acacia wood and covered with pure gold. And the lid, the mercy seat, was made of one piece of uh, beaten gold and the cherubim of mercy overshadowing the mercy seat. And in that place, God's presence was. You couldn't enter in there without the blood. By the way, the Bible tells us that without the blood of Christ, we cannot enter into that holy place of God either. We cannot, uh, the priest, he would not dare go in, lest you die, it says. And he'd take that blood. 
And he'd sprinkle it on the mercy seat. And that's the only thing that kept him from dying in the presence of God was the, the presence of the blood that was taken off that brazen altar of sacrifice, symbolical of the blood of Jesus. And when Jesus died on the cross, the Bible says the veil of the temple, the temple was later made after the order or fashion of the tabernacle, not the same, same exactly, but after the same order. And it says the veil in the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And it showed that in the death of Christ and by shedding His blood, there was an open way into the presence of God for all of us who come by faith in Christ. And Hebrews 10 says that we have a new and living way to come into God's presence. Uh, made way uh, ever fresh by the blood of Christ. A new means ever fresh. The only time in the New Testament that that word new is, is given. There's other words that mean new or that say new. But this particular word that means ever fresh and living way for us. In other words, today is just as uh, virtuous and and it carries just as much merit today for you and I to enter into the presence of God as when the day when Jesus died on the cross and then the resurrection morning and He went back to heaven and in the presence of God for us is just as effective today as it was then. And will be until Jesus comes again. And when uh, in the book of Revelation the Bible tells us that when we see Him and the redeemed see Him in the fourth chapter of Revelation, they'll see Him as a lamb having been newly slain. We'll see the death of Christ as if, if He had just died for our sins. And that's the way we should see Him today, as if it's been 2,000 years. But let's see Him as if He had just died for our sins and just opened up that new and living way into the presence of God. And how new and fresh and virtuous it is for every one of us. And the Bible says, Let us therefore come boldly into His presence by a new and living way. Alright? Here in Shiloh, look back in our psalm now. It says in verse 60, So that He forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh. He was wroth with Israel because they had rebelled and provoked Him to anger. The tent which He placed among them and delivered His strength into captivity and His glory into the enemy's hand. You know, God from time to time would deliver Israel into the enemy's hands just in order to chasten or correct them. Sometimes we say, well, God is uh, correcting me, chastening me. Well, if we won't listen, He will. If we won't listen, you know, chastening comes in... Chastisement comes in various forms. You, you chasten a child or chastise a child whenever you tell them and correct them. You say... Do not do this. And you kind of uh, scold them and get on to them for their wrongs. And if that doesn't work, you, you make them stay day in and night. Can't go out. or what, Ground them, as they use the term nowadays. You're grounded for a week. I don't know if that works, but anyway. I don't think it does. But anyway, then the next thing, you might even have to take the switch to them. You know, or get more drastic in your correcting uh, measures with a child and especially if they will not listen to the correcting the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12 that no chastening seemeth to be joyous for the present but grievous it says be grievous and it says but afterward it yieldeth now listen carefully that peaceable fruit of righteousness now listen here's the statement unto them which are exercised thereby it does not yield that peaceable fruit of righteousness unless you're exercised by that chastening. You see, if you have a child and, 
and you chase them, or even if you have to take a switch to them, and they just get madder all the time, and next time they do the same thing only with, with more rebellion, they're not exercised thereby. It did not help them. It, it was supposed to correct them in that era. Well, when we are corrected by God, He used the same method as we're His methods. We're His children. And when God corrects us, and then we rebel more, it requires greater uh, chastening. And uh, so it says, He delivered His strength into captivity and His glory into the enemy's hand. He gave His people over also unto the sword and was wroth with His inheritance. He would let them be defeated from time to time. He gave them over to the sword. That means that other nations, other the enemies could come in and, and kill many of them and defeat them in war. Remember when uh, Joshua one time says, uh, they suggested to Joshua, let not all the people go up. Some of the elders says, let not all the people go up to Ai to battle. But he said, you know, they, they're easy. We'll go up there and take them ourselves. Just a few of us, but let a few people go up. And so they sent a small number, and they came back defeated. And Joshua would begin to cry out, what's wrong? Or the people begin to complain. Joshua approached the Lord with it, and he says, Israel has sinned. Israel has sinned. And they found out that it was Achan, one man. We, we preached on imputation, I believe it was last Sunday. The doctrine of imputation. All, in, all of Achan's sin was imputed to the whole nation. And, and God said, Israel has sinned. Well, one man had sinned and taken the Babylonian garment and the wage of gold and the silver and hid it in his tent. But God said, Israel has sinned. They came back defeated. And so, uh, finally, when the account was taken as to who was really guilty and, it, and the sin was judged, and Achan and his family, by the way, were... Uh, imputed in his sin as well and they all were stoned because his sin was imputed to his family not only the nation but the family and they all suffered for it and when it was finally all done and they were going out to battle again God said take all the people he told Joshua take all the people of war up with you and fight the battle and they came back victorious you see uh, the reason they were defeated by the sword is not only their plan of attack and disregard for God's word to, for all of them to fight the battle, but also the sin that was in the camp. And so God got rid of the sin in the camp, and then He says, now don't just go up there with a few men. You send the whole army up there and win the war. God is not one that teases around when He fights battles. We've got them now that you know they just paint out a carrot stick on one hand and shoot a little pop gun over here with the other hand and think that's going to do it. You know, we'll give you this, but bang, that's about the way it goes. That's what we're doing all over the world today. And it's not a very good tactic. When you go in to fight, you fight. When you want peace, we'll have peace. When it's time to give gifts to each other, we'll have a good fellowship and communion and do that. It's all right. But don't go out here and try to win wars without fighting the battle. So, anyway, you remember Israel? What was it a six-day war back in the 40s? Or 60s, right? It didn't take them long, did it? They went after it. And everyone condemned them. But they got it over with right quick. If you're going to have to fight, do it. But don't, don't wait and mess around about it. And so, we, we haven't learned, have we? And all over the world, we got this little peace movement and this little thing going and trying to... And NATO and... Uh, 
UN and all of them involved, and it seems like they're fighting with one arm tied behind them. Okay, let's go on to this next verse. He delivered, verse 61 says, delivered his strength into captivity, his glory into the enemy's hand. He gave his people over also to the sword and was wroth with his inheritance. The fire consumed their young men and their maidens were not given to marriage. He really upset things for them to correct them and they still wouldn't listen. Their priests fell by the sword and their widows made no lamentation. Didn't they even have anyone that was concerned enough to weep about it? Their priests fell by the sword, and their widows made no lamentation. I believe it's in the book of Amos where it says, And they were not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. It speaks of how people go on and enjoy all their pleasures and their blessings, but God had one message for them, and they were not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. Joseph, the one that was suffering. It's an indication back there when the brethren had sold Joseph into bondage, you know, and they were going on their merry way and everything was prospering until the, until the famine came. But they were not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. They knew what they had done. It was not only true in Joseph's day, literally, but it was true for Israel of, of old. They were not grieved. They didn't care anything about it. We find people say, what do I care? What do I care? Well, we better get to caring about people. When they have problems, it's our problem. This old business, am I my brother's keeper? Yes, we really are. We're supposed to help. It says in verse 65, Then the Lord awakened as out of, uh, as one out of sleep, and like a mighty man that shouteth by reason of wine. And he smote his enemies in the hinder parts. He put them in a perpetual reproach. He literally did that, and I won't go back and tell you about it. You can read of it. Moreover, he refused the tabernacle of Joseph, and chose not the tribe of Ephraim. Joseph, that favorite son of Jacob. And then Ephraim, that was especially chosen between Ephraim and Manasseh. Remember? But he chose, but chose the tribe of Judah. He chose the tribe of Judah, the Mount Zion which he loved. Where did Jesus come from? He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the seed of David. He's the tribe of Judah. Before we close, look over in Revelation. We have a few more verses, but look in Revelation chapter 4. No, it's chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, verse 4. We'll pick up verse 4. And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open the, uh, and to read the book, neither to look thereon. John was searching for someone to open the book of Revelation, the seals that God had given, and to look... Uh, and to expound this book. And one of the elders said unto me, Weep not, behold, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, now who is the lion of the tribe of Judah? And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and in the midst of the four beasts, these heavenly creatures, uh, uh, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. A lamb as it had newly been slain, as it had been slain in sacrifice. A lamb as it had been slain. Listen. And who was this? The lion of the tribe of Judah, of the root of David, was the lamb that was slain. Jesus is the, of the seed of David, according to the flesh. And he is of the tribe of Judah, but he is the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. And we'll see him in the book of Revelation in glory, 
when the redeemed are there, Revelation 5, when the redeemed are all there, they're going to see Him as a lamb that have, has freshly been slain. That's what we referred to a little bit ago, I believe. All right, now back in our psalm, and we'll hurry and try to finish this chapter. It says down in verse uh, 68, But He chose the tribe of Judah, the, the Mount Zion which He loved, and He built His sanctuary like high palaces, like the earth which He had established forever. God built a sanctuary. He first built a temple, I mean a tabernacle, then He built a temple, and then He sent Christ to dwell among us. Then He left us with a New Testament church, and also at the same time He, he filled the church, His sanctuary, Ye are the temple of God, uh, Paul says to the Corinthians, and the Holy Spirit of God dwells in you. He says, Ye, plural, as the first as the church, and the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And then he says later on, Your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. So it's a temple uh, individually. You get that? The tabernacle? The tabernacle. He dwelt in the... We referred to it earlier. Then the temple that was made. And then later on, Christ tabernacled among us. And then Jesus went back to heaven and He tabernacles in the church today. He dwells in the church collectively and then He dwells in the church individually in the believer. And both of these are indicated in the studies in Corinthians. When Paul says, Ye are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwelleth in you, he's speaking plural at the whole church, the whole local church of the Corinthians. Then he's says later on, I believe it's in the 6th chapter, your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which you have of God. Glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. So, we find that God from time to time has dwelt among men and tabernacled among men. In Revelation, you're going to find in the 21st chapter that the tabernacle of God is with men and He shall dwell with them and God will be with them and God Himself shall be their God and they shall be His people. Okay, let's finish this. Uh, verse um, 70. He chose David also his servant and took him from the sheepfold. Remember when the sons of Jesse came before Samuel and uh, Samuel could not find anyone? He looked upon the size of these brothers of David, you know. And none of them were acceptable. God says, I haven't chosen this one. And finally, Samuel says, Do you have any more uh, sons? He said to Jesse. Jesse says, There's a lad out there. He's tending the flock. His name is David. He says, Fetch him. Go get him. He brought up, brought David up, and he says, Anoint him, king over Israel. He says, This is the one that I have chosen. For man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. So he chose David. And then he says in verse 71, From falling the ewes, great with young, he, he brought him to feed Jacob his people and Israel his inheritance. He brought David to feed the chosen nation or people of his inheritance. I wish I had time to deal with Jacob and then Israel, both the same person, the lower man and the higher man, the natural man and the spiritual man. Jacob was his name by uh, nature. And Israel is the name that God gave him, right? Jacob and Israel are the same person. But it says he uh, brought David, of course, to feed Jacob his people and Israel his inheritance. You see, we're well taken care of. Then verse 72. So he fed them. Look at the word fed. He fed them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. 
Look at the word fed, guided, and then skillfulness of his hands. Look at what all God has done. This shows an example of God's love for his people and his sovereignty. Verse 9, he refused Ephraim. Verse uh, 9 also, no, I mean verse 69. Where is it? Oh, verse 67. I got it wrong. 67. Verse 67, he refused Ephraim, chose not the tribe of Ephraim. Verse, verse 68, he chose the tribe of Judah. Uh, verse 70, he chose David. And then uh, he chose Mount Zion as well for a place of his sanctuary. In verse 68, the Mount Zion which he loved. So God exercises his sovereignty. It says, The Lord loveth the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. In Psalm 87, verse 2, The Lord loveth the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. That means the spiritual place for God's people to, to assemble more than our natural habitat than all the dwellings of Jacob. So God loves the house of God. You and I, we have houses and we love the houses. We love to have a home. We love to have a roof over our head. But God says He loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. So we remember the house of God is above every house that we have. And His spiritual presence is above all 